1: and welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkron, and today I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Dr. Nicholas Sutton of the Oxford Centre for Hindu Studies. Good morning, uh, good day, and, and welcome to the program. Um, so, before we dive into your translations, why don't you tell us a bit about the Centre and your work there? Okay.
0: Well, The centre itself is an academic institution that is um, affiliated to uh, Oxford University as a whole. And much of the work that it carries out is academic publications, academic books, academic papers, academic research and translations. We've got specialists in a wide range of uh, different fields of Hindu studies um, working on various projects there. And we're very fortunate that... uh, that we're able to um, pursue those lines of study there. And we also, I think, when the um, University of Oxford uh, students want to explore Indian culture, Indian religion, they come over to us and they study with um, the, the academic directors and other academics who are present there. We've got Gavin Flood, fortunately, as our academic um, as our academic director, and he teaches courses to Oxford University students. So it's a kind of affiliation, but we're not essentially part of the university. They use us when they need us, so to speak. But from my point of view, I've always been focused on what they call continuing education, which I like to think of as expanding Oxford beyond the walls of the university. there's criticisms valid criticisms being leveled at oxford university that it's excessively elitist and it has a very high proportion of people from wealthy backgrounds attending there coming from fee paying schools so what we've always tried to do is to take the same standard of education that people would get from oxford university and make it available to uh, to everyone so for I don't know, 10, 15 years now, I've been writing and teaching courses which are offered to um, anybody in the community who wants to study. There's no um, qualification that we demand apart from an interest. And also, offer the courses, I think this is a big point, offer them a, a price. That is accessible to the vast majority of people because um, studying at Oxford University these days is a very, very expensive business, but we try and keep our costs down to to a minimum for that same reason, to make it available to to everyone. I would also say, and I'd like to make this point as well, that the focus of what uh, we do at the Considering Education Department is perhaps a little different from conventional academic study in as much as I think in religious studies, the emphasis is on learning about religions, learning facts, figures, locations, cataloging the ideas they offer, the different tendencies within them. Whereas we do all of that, and and, and I would like to think up to the same standard as is done in the very best universities learn a huge amount about the religion, but we also um, I think try to facilitate going a step beyond that and thinking about learning from the ideas as well and that 's always been my primary motivation that if we don 't at least give the option to reflect on the wider significance of the ideas and material we we consider then we're not doing justice to the subject area. We're reducing it to something rather mundane and bland when it's just brimming over with richness and deep ideas that make all of us think about ourselves, our lives. And I always like to say, let's take a step beyond just learning about religion and think about um, what we can learn from them. Not in a confessional sense where I say, this is the truth, but just saying, look, showing an idea have a look at this what do you think about this does this relate to the way you live your life so i think that's what we offer perhaps which is a bit a bit of a bonus some might think some might think it's an intrusion but i think most of the students who study with us very much appreciate that we do facilitate that taking a step beyond
1: there are a number a number of fascinating um threads in what you just said at least as it pertains Um, to my own path and my own interests Um, I've been teaching continuing studies at the University of Toronto I finished the master's in 2010 and then I I took this teaching job Um, I've had it for the last decade or so and I sort of feel that um, uh, this will be my last year there I think I feel to sort of uh, branch out and do something a bit different but alongside the continuing studies I've been teaching um, courses in the community in Toronto and also um, online courses and the continuing studies uh, at the University of Toronto we have interested adults interested undergrads who uh, love the material and it's sort of a, a passion to study it and and delve in yet um, the 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 sort of precipice upon which you stand or even venture over i don 't quite venture over um, in that setting, but in other settings um, online courses as I say. Uh, may say to folks, well, what do you make of this, uh, you know, in terms of life learning, you know, what is, what is the value of this, right? Um, and so, so it really, really resonates um, and full disclosure on the air here. Uh, I came across um, the Oxford Centre of Hindu Studies' uh, continuing studies online courses just last week and I was gobsmacked, I was floored. <laughs> that there was this treasure trove of 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 Hindu studies content really accessible to anybody who who can afford a reasonably priced course uh, in the neighborhood of a hundred pounds or so and uh and 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 therefore I contacted the center and here we are interviewing more about the center rather than your publications because i i think it's um i think there's there's there there i sense a real synergy between. Uh, the people who listen to this podcast, and the people who um, w- would benefit from the Oxford Centre of Hindu Studies. Because what you've done is, uh, you, when you put courses online, it really collapses geography. It really collapses time zones. And so could you tell us, um, and this is our first conversation, so we haven't really shared a uh, war story, so to speak, but can you tell us a little bit about how this this online venture started up and, and its mandate
0: well it grew out of as just as you were saying there it grew out of um uh, face-to-face teaching when we first started up me and a couple of colleagues two or three colleagues at oxford anurada rembert friends and colleagues we used to drive all around the country in my old uh volkswagen and we'd do classes at hindu centers primarily they weren't not everybody was a hindu who attended but it was very much Groups of Hindus. We did Swami Swaminarayan Temple or the uh, Brahmin Samaj uh, community, and we'd, um, you know, we'd put on classes and discussion groups there, trying to again take the knowledge that we had and kind of share it. And I would have to say, um, learn an enormous amount when I was working for the Open University some years back. I made the point that when I teach within the community. always listening and hearing and learning so much because and i think i'm sorry i'm going off subject a bit here but i think it's an important point when you pick up a book which says introduction to hinduism yeah it does give you ideas about um upanishads advaita etc but it doesn't give you that real insight into hindus it's introduction to hinduism it's not introduction to hindus and it was only when we started working within communities And I think that really enriched my um, ability as a a, a tutor when I I also worked at Nottingham University at that time as a lecturer. And I I could then really fill out the material in the the academic books with personal experience of interaction with the community. It got to the point um, where it was just logistically impossible um, driving all over the country and just two or three of us I'd go down to London from Birmingham to every Tuesday evening to give a class and I think we were just exhausted at a personal level I it, I, I started to feel um, well my health started to decline and I think a lot of it was just because we, we were so um, inspired by the project that we pushed ourselves too far and it was at that point we started to think well maybe we could do it online and in some ways it's not quite as good online as face-to-face interaction but in some ways it's um it's really much better and the groups that we've got which can vary in size from 10 up to 70 i think zoe in in the sanskrit course has got over 100 this time but um we manage um sometimes we have to have two tutors rather than one but they're spread right across the globe so in a typical course like people in um, Australia, New Zealand, India, European countries, UK, of course, Canada, US, Latin America. I think that's a great thing as well, because um, it, you know, we have discussion forums and a lot of the time people from different parts of the world are sharing their own experiences. And, and particularly, I think, in the last month or so, when, you know, there's been such Terrible difficulties with um, contact between individuals. I think people have appreciated the opportunity to just discuss things with like-minded people so um yeah the, the program has really since we went online, it's really expanded. I was at this idea in my head you know if we went online, uh, you know it opened it up on a global basis, it might take off, but I had no idea that it would um, it would take off to the extent that it has. I think I
1: think that's, the, that's that's true. It will it will continue to take off. I think um, we'll probably enter in some kind of uh, partnership to promote the courses, which will be fantastic. I think for listeners um, and for those interested in in learning about Hindu studies in 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 a responsible uh, but in a, 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 a an enriched, lived, empathetic manner you know i say to colleagues uh, i've said to colleagues really um there's two functions that you slash the center because i'm inferring that you are the lifeblood of the center Um, but there there are two functions that you fulfill that i think are crucial for what we do Uh, the first is that it certainly isn't the responsibility of a scholar of religion to engage the public that certainly isn't the responsibility nevertheless it's very much needed for what we do and uh, the academy would be well served to systematically do so, whether by appointing or creating a position per department or half-time position to do so or or, or certainly leveraging those of us who are more um, public-facing, people-friendly and all that. This is the second uh, function which I've struggled with for years uh, as an undergrad throughout my grad school. I've struggled with this forever because I've, I fully respect and understand that the academic study of religion, it's not theology, it's not um, uh, 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 spiritual care. And yet uh, there've been so many conversations I've, ha- I've had with undergrads who left wishing they got more of a taste of the religion. And it's really only in going to a, a, a trip to a temple Mm-hmm. That they 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 light up because then they've not just read the sheet music but they've they've heard the music right they've they've, they've heard the instrument and you know I'm a bit of an armature ethnographer so wherever I go I talk to students so last year I had the good fortune of presenting at the um, uh, annual conference for the European Association of for the study of religion it was happened to be in Estonia and um, there I was uh, one morning just chatting with the student volunteers about their courses, of the nature of religion. And obviously, they're, they're the keen students who are volunteering for this, and they're very bright. But the same malaise was echoed even in that context. That Really, it would be nice to have more immersion into yeah, the religious life. And of course, that is not, I don't think that is um, uh, the responsibility of those who teach uh, religion at the academy nevertheless um our our students are leaving not fully nourished and they need to get that somewhere especially responsible citizens of the globe i feel
0: yeah yeah i agree with you completely and and you say it's not theology but i don't know about in canada but in britain you, you can study religion as under the heading of theology i mean my first undergraduate degree for geographical reasons um was in theology, I got a BA in theology, and then I went on and did my doctorate in Mahabharata. But I would have to say that I found studying theology more interesting and inspiring, even though it was Christianity, which wasn't really of any great interest to me, but the, the way it was studied, was so much more interactive with the students. For example, I studied global poverty and religious responses to it. Even back in those days, we looked at environmental crisis, which I didn't find any of that when I did religious studies. I did religious studies at Bristol to start off with. And I do think that that we, we have, as teachers of religion, if you like, or as tutors of religious studies, we have such a wonderful, fascinating, absorbing beautiful subject area to explore more perhaps than any other subject area and i, I do think to some extent where the conventional approach is short-changing students and they do tend to go away disappointed from 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 their studies i think there's a historical context to that is that the original um founders of the discipline if you like union and smart and others like him they were anxious to get away from that comparative religion paradigm where everything was studied in relation to um, to Christianity and they wanted to establish a sort of neutral perspective where each religion spoke on its own terms. But I, I've been feeling for years now that um, this that, that argument has been won. We don't need to uh, be overly wary about Christian bias. And, and the, the, the real danger is now from secular bias that people um, I had a colleague at Oxford she said she'd left the university she worked in because she didn't want to teach religion in an environment with people who don't like religion Um, which see there is that I think particularly perhaps with um, Hinduism there is a mood of sort of criticism and even condemnation in it which I believe is absolutely Inappropriate. I've always regarded myself as an Englishman studying an Indian religion or Indian religions as very much of a guest in, in, in someone else's property, intellectual and spiritual property. I mean, we gave a paper on that, about the Mahabharata, that we are invited guests into someone else, another community's intellectual and spiritual property. Um, <laughs> I think a poem by W.B. Yeats says, Let us tread softly before we tread on dreams. Don't say those things. If you're going to cause any offence to anyone, don't say it at all. One thing I've learned from Bhagavad Gita, chapter 17, when you write, when you speak, your words should never cause disturbance to others. They should be honest, they should be pleasing, and they should be beneficial a harsh criticism of a religion does nobody any good except perhaps where it, 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 it's obviously contravening dharma so i do think i agree with you completely we have to look for and I've, I've been saying this actually for 30 odd years now we have to approach religion in such a way that it inspires the study of religion i mean that it inspires elevates and above all interests people because a lot of what the academic i know from tutoring in universities you say read this academic paper on the subject and the students come back and say it's so boring which is dreadful really because religion isn't boring it really reflects on every every aspect of our lives it shouldn't be boring and yet somehow it's been made boring i think a little bit so uh, another feature that I always is I insist on anyone works no jargon, no overly academic language to impress your peers, no references to people like postmodernist writers who nobody's ever heard of, not nobody's ever heard of, but perhaps not many people have ever read. Just tell it in a way that. Um, it is readily comprehensible because, again, so much, and you must have experienced this, so much academic writing is almost deliberately obfuscatory. it I'm um, sorry, I've used a long word there, but it, it seems almost to obscure what is not a difficult meaning. There was a, an article I read in the Times Higher Higher Education Supplement a few years ago where in which the author Subtitled his article saying the best way to impress your peers is to write complete gobbledygook that no one can understand. It's just kind of why do that? We want we've got something so wonderful here, something like Gita. Whether you're a believer or not, it's still a really profound contribution to the wisdom of the world. So cherish it and give it in a way that people will derive the utmost benefit from it that's my belief anyway
1: well it's certainly um it's uh, refreshing and inspiring um what would you say would you say that the courses the online courses that you offer are sort of in that vein
0: i hope so and and i think they've become increasingly so as i've got older Uh, i um perhaps booked a trend as Particularly since, I suppose, my health has declined over the last six years. I'm not as vigorous as I was, and perhaps more in contact with my own mortality. Literally, uh, at times, I think I've. You start to look at what you write and what you do, and you ask that question: What's the value of of what I'm doing? And yeah, sure, it's good to know about religion, but um, I I think increasingly, I've always tried to put that element into it of exploring the wider significance and wide wider questions that these religious ideas um promote it's not preaching it's it's all it's really very much like a lot of indian texts are it's showing you have a look at this have a look at yudhishthira in mahabharata this is how he behaves here what do you think about that oh he's Bhima. Look at him, he's more aggressive. What do you think about that? How do the ideas interact? And and encouraging people to reflect on the wider significance of people without preaching to them, but you know, trying to draw out the full beauty and richness and depth of the material that we're we study. It's never at the expense of knowing about the material, and I would argue that when we write them, we know as much in terms of, you know, the, the content, et cetera. We have to be have expertise in the content in order to base our, uh, to, in which to root our further exploration. But it's offering the opportunity to go that one step further, I suppose. That's
1: what I'd say. Well, it seems to me that <clears throat> that scholars of religion, um, you know, their, their primary um function is to understand sort of the socio-cultural horizon or uh, impetus for the text or the phenomenon. Um, At the same time, that doesn't preclude folding in sort of the psycho-spiritual or the the, the reasons why something lasts a millennia or two are not because of the generation in which it began. And so to do one well seems to do the other not so well. And to get them both right is quite difficult because many people may wax poetically about the essence of the Gita and how it moves their being, um, but not be willing to concede that there was a compositional history over centuries and, and there, there's, a, there's a framing project within the Mahabharata. And yet those who may be experts at understanding that as best as we can, that compositional history, may may, may lose sight of the fact that this this um, this is soulful. That this mm-hmm. is expansive. That that uh, I am time run on to annihilate worlds. Mm-hmm. If, if that doesn't give you the shivers of the burning bush, mm-hmm. like what will? Exactly. Uh, and so so to get the two to get the two sides of our being sort of to cooperate to uh, to to engage religion in a way that is and that is rigorous uh, sort of. Um, Academically responsible. Mm -hmm. But it certainly isn't our job at the academy necessarily to, to spiritually cater to our students. But it's definitely our job to not deny them that nourishment by reducing religion to the elements that we can empirically examine because clearly. Uh, it's more than the sum of its parts um, for those who are moved by it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's not our job to spiritually
0: cater for people. And sometimes you do feel that role, which is basically the guru role being ascribed to you. And I would absolutely reject any suggestion that what we're doing is taking on the guru role. It's not what we're doing at all. But I do think that... um, whilst we don't spiritually cater the material that we explore can provide that spiritual catering like the, the Panishads, for example and so if someone comes to us and asks you know this idea this this concept has been uh, troubling me you can then i often say we're like an enthusiastic librarian you can say well have a look at this over here see this this uh, section, read this, explore this. What do you think about it? So it's not in a, on a personal level, spiritually catering, but it's allowing the material that we consider to do that catering, which is what it was originally designed to do, undoubtedly.
1: Well, we well, we, we shouldn't eclipse the light of that material or tradition such so as to um, have our students leave more jaded. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, I, um, so th- there's, there's obviously a tremendous amount of synergy, it seems, between, um, between our way of, of viewing and, and, and sort of uh, using religion. And um, it, it was only when I started teaching online and in person that I had the full range to point to some of the deeper applications and meanings of the text without going into the realm of esoteric training. Right, there's still plenty that one can do with an astute humanistic eye that's well outside of, you know, diksha or, um, you know, some sort of esoteric um, grappling with the text. Um, you, know, you provided, um, you have produced uh, translations of two very popular and um, seminal uh, Hindu works, uh, the Yoga Sutras and uh, the Bhagavad Gita. Mm-hmm. Um, let's touch on both of them. Which one shall we talk okay. about first? Let's take the Yoga Sutras first. Um, no. Go on. So, 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 why... why? There's no shortage of translations of the Yoga Sutras. And so, what prompted you to translate it and sort of what might one get from this translation that's not quite elsewhere?
0: Um, what I tried to do with... Sorry, I would never say that and i mean there's some excellent works on um on the yoga sutras um and uh and, and which go in more depth than the one i did what i want the a lot of people are interested in yoga at the moment and I'll, and a lot of people take that interest onto the Yoga Sutras. It's a really difficult text, both to translate and to comprehend, even when you've translated it. It's open to a range of different interpretations. And all I wanted to do was present a version of the Yoga Sutras that kind of made sense to people, that wasn't beset by these too much complexities. Now, I accept that in doing so, um, I may have... Um, I may have diminished the full complexity of it but what I I wanted to do is re- read the sutras for myself reflect on their meaning and then just try and explain what I saw as the significance of them in a again in a way that everybody could um, could understand I would say with dealing with the yoga sutras and I'm working on it again actually using a range of the traditional commentators from Vyasa Bhikshu, bhashya Pratimishra and i would say that the range of insights they offer is um goes beyond what i included in that small volume but what i think people have found useful in it is that they can take the yoga sutras and not read three or four pages and think i have no clue where this is going what this is all about they can read it and find uh, an explanation that makes sense and is relevant to their own practice and that's what i'm doing it, it's the sort of task that you do and is never complete it's ongoing but i think as a first step it, it, it's it, it is quite useful and it, it, it's something that takes you beyond just the basic and sometimes erroneous reading of the yoga sutras and gives you the first step uh, uh, to to gaining a higher understanding in a manner that's accessible to people of all backgrounds, academic or not, that they can take that first step along the road with it. And then there are some other excellent uh, books. Uh, Edwin Bryant's done a really comprehensive version in which he does draw on the commentators. And I'm trying to um, do something a little bit similar now in expanding on what I've done before. But what I would say with that book we've got is is it's a decent first step first point of entry into the Yoga Sutras in a form that people won't find uh, off-putting or overly difficult, and yet at the same time does do, to a significant extent, justice to the complexity of them, the material included?
1: Well, it certainly is uh, quite accessible. So that it's probably, it may well be the most accessible translation of the Yoga Sutras that I've come across mm. so i'll certainly be recommending it to folks who, who uh, might just want to dip their toe into uh, into the tradition um yeah. or, or get a sense of the of the sutras without being bogged down by too much of the technical or esoteric content
0: yeah yeah i mean you'll see with the translations my translations are much longer than the wording of the sanskrit sutras because if you're just to straightforwardly translate it word by word it I mean, there's hardly any verbs in it, for one thing. That's the way sutras come. So, in a sense, as a translator, you've got to kind of fill it out a little bit. And I've tried to do that uh, in a way that makes sense. And I think, in case of most sutras, it does work. Some, if I was to go back, I might change them a little bit now. But you always do that, don't you? When you've produced a book, you look. Back at it, and say, "Oh, I'd have said that differently." But I, I, I agree. I think that that's what the aim was always to give people a first step on their introduction, from which they can, if they choose, go on to look at the more um, complex studies, the nuances of Sankhya philosophy that are there in the Yoga Sutras. Uh, it, you know, start off, give it a go. If it really grabs you, then there's plenty more
1: you can uh, you can go on to. So tell us then about your process with the Bhagavad Gita, how that translation came about.
0: Uh, um, I mean, easier. I mean, years ago, there was a, a scholar you might have heard of, uh, Friedhelm Hardy, Fred Hardy. I don't know if you've come across his work, German scholar. And I was talking to him, maybe 30, 40 years ago, um, up at Lancaster University. And as we were walking along, he said... Um, You know, you use the Gita. And I said, yeah. And he said, how do you find it? And I said, well, Sanskrit wise, it's uh, relatively easy. He said, yes, yes. I don't mean that, though. He said, can you understand it? You know, you can translate the Sanskrit words, but do you understand the meaning behind those words? And I think that's often a lot more difficult. And it's um, progressive as well. There's never a point at which you say, now I've got the Gita. Then you come back the next day and you read a verse and you think about this word, you think about that word, and uh, you, you see again something more that you hadn't spotted before. So it, you never reach reach the end. But I, I feel uh, very confident, actually, with working with the Gita. And I have, going through that, I made use of... Particularly the, the principal commentaries on it. I used Shankaracharya's commentary, I used Acharya's commentary, I used Acharya's commentary. So, really trying to express the meaning of the Gita from within the tradition rather than from external voices. I mean, it's really difficult, isn't it, translating? Because, on the one hand, you want to be as literal as possible, but on the other hand, you've got to convey the meaning and it's finding that balance um i think increasingly as i was working on the guitar i was finding that i wasn't translating all the sanskrit words like atman dharma etc you could say i don't know law uh, for, for dharma or something like that but it doesn't really you've already got preconceptions of what law is and those preconceptions aren't what dharma is and likewise soul if you use the word soul for atman, we've already got preconceptions of what soul means which aren't the same as the meaning of atman. so increasingly i've tended to leave those words untranslated and lie the context of the discussion and of course the notes that I had to explain the um the full meaning of them but um I like that text that I produced on the Gita when I read it you know sometimes when you've written something a little while back and you read back and you think "Ooh, gosh and then but when I read that one I like it and I think yeah that that's that's a decent piece of work that that I I did on that and um I think I know the Gita very well. I've been studying it for years and I've been thinking about it for years. And I've I've read the commentaries, not just those three, but other commentaries, Madhusudan Saraswati, etc. Um, and I, got, I think a decent insight into what the Gita is about and what Krishna is saying. And also perhaps um, the full significance of the Gita, because I don't, this, Probably struck you as well, but um, for me, the Gita is so fundamental to the development of Indian religion in as much as it looks back to the wisdom of the Upanishads and it quotes from the Upanishads quite often. You know, the idea of Advaita, essential unity of all existence, which comes, from, but it also crucially looks forward into the development of Indian religion with its emphasis on bhakti. Divine love, divine grace, compassion of the deity for us and his saving of us, etc., which you don't find in the Upanishad. So it's such an important te- And I've tried to definitely step back from the Sampradayas in the notes that I've given along with it. I've said, this is how Shankaracharya reads the verse. By contrast, this is how Madhvacharya reads the verse. Sometimes I had a comment like, in this situation, Shankara's interpretation is closer to the overt meaning, but never say that any other reading of it is wrong, and allow the readers to think about the subtleties of its thought, because the Gita, in many ways, is a very subtle text, and the way that the language of the Gita is used is... um, as a, in, in oxford the other a few weeks ago now actually and julius lipner was giving a talk on krishna smiling it says there when krishna begins to give give his talk it says prasaneva smiling a little bit and a lot of times you can see in the gita krishna's very clever in the way he juxtaposes words will have different meanings in close association with each other and you can always almost feel as you're reading it through the smile coming through here untangle that one etc and also for example um chapter 2 verse 19 of the gita is um the same as chapter 2 verse 19 of the upanishad again maybe that's another one that's a coincidence perhaps or maybe it's another of Krishna's little jokes that comes comes through there. so i'm very I feel very comfortable with the Gita and i I, I feel very um satisfied with it with with what uh, the version that's presented. I think it's very accessible. I think it's rooted in the tradition that owns it, and I think it, uh, it, it it's pretty effective at showing the range of ideas that the Gita is setting forward.
1: A That's, a <laughs> it's uh, no small uh, accomplishment to translate the Gita in a way that you're comfortable. And um, just to give the listeners a sense, your translation is much more than a translation insofar as it's a guided tour um, interspersed in the translated verses. Our key points, our key questions, it, it, um, clearly this translation is the result of somebody who's a teacher first seems to me
0: yeah it's someone who walks quite a lot actually as well I mean every day I um, I go out and do my two miles and a lot of the things that are in there I'm sort of if I'm usually cogitating I've got a kind of sometimes a uh, a word or a verse in mind and going over what could it, what could the is why is this said why does it follow that verse? how does it fit together so a lot of it is a a reflection of those thoughts and then you go home you read what shankaracharya says and thinks hmm, maybe that and then you read someone else so it, there's a whole kind of thought process that's gone in it and i really when i pose questions they're the questions that have occurred in my mind as i've read it and possibly the suggested answers. I haven't got all the answers, obviously, but they're possible answers to the conundrums that the text raises and say it could be that this is meant or it could be that that is meant. And again, it's that same process of showing people, have a look at this. What do you think about this? Or have a look at that. What do you think about that? And I, of course, at the end, Krishna says, Vimushayta Think about it all very carefully. And then... Do what you decide is best. So I think that's what I'm trying to facilitate, showing, have a look at this idea. Have a look at that idea. Have a look at the other ideas. Do they fit together? Why is this being said? Why is this being said there? And trying to, uh, if you like, unravel unravel the text in that way.
1: Well, the, the, the text um, exquisitely puts, puts uh, advances puzzle pieces yeah and perhaps a bit of instruction and is emphatic uh in it's imperative that it is your impetus to assemble the puzzle and indeed it may be the puzzle of a lifetime or many
0: yeah i think so i mean it, it's been a and it's an ongoing thing as well you know the more I, it never stops, because recently I've been working on Shaivism, which I had some knowledge of before, but never gone into the same amount of detail. And interesting, again, when you read the writing of the Shaiva Acharyas, um, how they're raising the same questions. and In some cases, they're coming up with the same answers as the Gita. And you find kind of lines of congruence like that, which again raise more questions. So that's very pleasing as well, because it, it suggests that the questions that have been posed aren't specific to the teachings of the Gita alone, but they're universal questions that all of humanity faces uh, uh, throughout history. So, um, yeah, I mean, I still uh, expanding my knowledge of the Gita, but I, I, I must, I do feel that that one, uh, I felt like I'd managed to, you know, do that primary task of taking what is quite a set of complex ideas and presenting them, Doing justice to the fullness and richness of those ideas, but discussing them in a manner that anybody could come along with and come along to, and, uh, and and find that they make sense, not obfuscated in any way.
1: Well, a running theme of this interview is um, it appears to be a running theme of both your life and work, and the mandate of new books in Hindu studies, and indeed the New Books Network at large. It's a it's a consortium of about eighty five. Subject-specific, public-facing uh, author interview podcasts, and um, uh, one of the one of the core values is sort of the democratization of knowledge, or, or to render to render accessible. And so, it's I find it fascinating that you found yourself um, in not just an ivory tower, but perhaps an ivory tower slightly more closer and taller than most, and and. Nevertheless, uh, perhaps because of that um, mm-hmm. setting, you have endeavored to m- make accessible an Oxford education <laughs> in some way, shape or form, at least where it comes to understanding this thing called Hinduism. Um, and now that that thrust is available online through uh, wi well, I saw, I'm sure, close to a couple dozen courses fully built out, which is staggering to me because the courses that I taught were always um, synchronic. I would, I plan to build out full courses at some point, um, but really you need sort of an, a, a, a steady audience or an institutional setting to to make that thrive. And, and for me, it's like the work is already done in these courses it's, All right. it's already done. No, 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 no. I mean, the work is done uh, for. There's plenty that I could teach on, obviously, uh, mm. plenty else. But I mean, the work is already done. Um, the the teaching is already there. Yeah. The, the 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 lectures are already there, and now it's just a question of connecting with an audience. and mm. And um, uh, I strongly suspect we'll will partner in some way. And and mm. and I invite the audience to 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 have a look. Um, I will. Uh, include the link to your um online offerings in this in this podcast um yeah uh, right up and so folks can have a look and uh enjoy some some fascinating content i'll, I'll probably be diving in to a few things um, myself and maybe circle back in subsequent podcasts in terms of the content therein. Um, Nick, I know that you had a a relatively limited time this morning. Is there anything else you wanted to say or touch on?
0: Um, Yeah, I mean, you mentioned my own background, which is very much shaped the way I I approach it. And you said democratization, which really resonated with me. It's exactly right. I want to break through that pomposity and that exclusiveness, which is very often connected to economic status as well as intellectual status. Uh, and, 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 and um and, and move beyond that. And this should be available to everybody, regardless of ability to pay. And I suppose that goes back to my own background. I've never, you know, I was never one of the posh kids who went to a, a fee paying school like so many Oxford tutors did and i didn't go to oxford i went to um bristol and birmingham university and and a lot of my friends aren't particularly academics they're just normal run-of-the-mill people and 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 i i I just wanted to never ah, i don't like that exclusivity that we're the kind of in club and we're the ones who know and they're all outsiders Ah, it's not like that this is for everybody and everybody's welcome in and come on in and break down the walls if you like and it's a bit like the uh I don't want, maybe I shouldn't push the example a bit like the french revolution when all the uh, the people were strolling around the louvre palace admiring all the goods that were now their property so um maybe i should take that back actually it's a bit too but something along those lines that this is for everybody. It's not just for a, a small, privileged, intellectual elite. It, it, I really want to get it out there and share what we have w- with everybody else. That's always the aim.
1: So shall we use the metaphor Prometheus then? <laughs> um, you'll have to explain it to me. Prometheus uh, stole the fire from 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 oh, the oh, gods, yeah, yeah. from the Greek pantheon, to bring it down to earth so mankind can benefit. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I think stick with the French Revolution.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right, a revolutionary. <laughs> All right, you'll have you you'll have no argument for me. Um, <laughs> that's wonderful. It's been it's been great having you on the program. Um, uh, I'll sign off, uh, and then you'll just stay on for a second. So, okay. for those of you listening, we have been speaking with Dr. Nicholas Sutton, uh, the director uh, and clearly the visionary behind the Oxford Centre for Hindu Studies. Uh, In particular, it's Continuing Studies Outreach, whose aim is to democratise knowledge, a a great fruit of which seems to be these uh, fascinating online courses. So check out the courses, check out the centre, and until next time, keep reading, keep thinking, stay safe.